And would you turn with me to the book of Acts? We're going to be in Acts chapter 6 this morning towards the beginning of the New Testament, right after the Gospels, looking at the early church. And the reason we're not in Revelation, which has been our standard practice as of late, we were in a series preaching verse by verse through the book of Revelation. But this morning we're taking a brief detour because of the special occasion we have this morning. Because we're going to be ordaining and installing two new deacons, I always find it on these unique occasions to kind of pause and stop and ask and answer two very important questions. Why do we do what we do as a church? And why does that matter? And the reason I like to ask those questions is because I want you to see that there is biblical intentionality that underlies and drives why we do what we do. I don't want you to just hook, line, and sink or accept everything that I say, although my, my ego might love that, but I want you to see that why we do what we do has biblical basis, has a biblical uh, drive behind it. And so with that biblical intentionality, I think there are always wonderful, fruitful implications that grow off of the tree of biblical intentionality. Because in one sense, you, you really have two choices. When you're not biblically intentional, some other thing is going to drive why you do what you do. And when it's not the scriptures, then the church becomes like a tumbleweed. So we were on our camping trip. We're driving in South Carolina. And right in front of me, uh, a tumbleweed you know, blows past us. I don't know if it was technically a tumbleweed because we weren't in the desert. But a tumbleweed is a rootless, fruitless shrub that is driven and tossed wherever the wind takes it. That is a church that is not grounded in a biblical intentionality. But a biblically intentional church to use the metaphors of Psalm 1, is like a tree planted by streams of water. It has deep roots in rich biblical soil. And when those roots are deep in that soil, it brings forth fruit in its season and it is not driven and tossed by every wind and wave of culture. And so that's what we want to be and do. And that's why I want to show you, even in this process that we've walked through and what you're about to witness today, we're following a biblical pattern. So I'm going to read to you Acts 6, verses 1 to 7, because this is where the prototype of the office of deacon comes out, and this is why we have the offices in the church that we do. So Acts 6, starting in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And so the twelve, that's the apostles, they summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and we will appoint them to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmanus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Well, this far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. God, as we come to hear your word, to sit underneath it this morning, Lord, make us those who are humble and contrite in heart, who tremble before your word. May we understand that if we do not have your word, we are as the blind leading the blind. But your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. May it be that for us individually and corporately as the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, I've noticed in landscape design in Florida that's unique to where I come from in the Midwest is that these homes, wherever they have this exposed section on the front of their house, will often put in a climbing vine or a wire trellis. Perhaps you've seen one of these. And when a climbing vine is first installed, it, it really doesn't look like much at all. It's ra- rather simple. It's a piece of wire arranged around some hooks in diamond patterns. And when you first look at it, it really seems plain. It seems dull. It's very unappealing. In fact, when I first saw it on a house, it had no vine yet growing on it because it had just been installed. And I thought, you know, surely they could have afforded something a little bit nicer to decorate their front of their house. I mean, I love plain and ordinary as much as the next guy. That's my favorite decorating style. But even I have my limitations, okay? I'm not a psychopath or anything like that. Well, looking at this simple wire arranged around a set of hooks in a diamond pattern at first seems ordinary. But what I come to realize is that it was merely the structure upon which later a beautiful, lush, green vine was going to grow and wrap itself around it in this pattern. And so when the vine's planted, it has the structure that it needs because it needs something to climb up and wrap itself around. And eventually, once it becomes full grown, you have this beautiful decoration on the front of your house, this wire vine or this wire trellis. And so it all makes sense once I saw the final product. It's not just this plain, ordinary wire. It starts out as that. But that plain, ordinary wire serves an essential and indispensable function. It is the structure upon which something beautiful is going to grow. The wire is not the main part. That's why it's just there at the beginning, but it's covered up in the end. But it is an essential part. Without the wire, something beautiful, like that green vine, cannot grow the way it's supposed to grow. And for me, this provides a very fitting and helpful analogy for the structure and organization and government of a local church. The local church exists not to have a structure and an organization and a government. Congregational meetings, you'd be happy to hear this, is not the point of having a local church. A local church exists for the vine of gospel advancement, Christ-like character, renewed minds and hearts to grow. But in order for that to happen, the wire of a biblically structured church government must exist in the right way, in the right place, so that growth can happen. Because if there is no proper structure, no proper organization in the church, the growth of the vine becomes difficult, if not impossible. The opposite of an organization and structure is anarchy, and anarchy has never yet worked out, and it never will. And so part of my appeal to you in this sermon is to care about and give thought to something as mundane and ordinary as church structure and church organization. Perhaps this, this will probably be one of the best sermons you've ever heard on church structure and organizations because it's probably the only sermon you've ever heard on church structure and organization. But it is important because by the Lord's design, church structure, how it's governed, is vital to church health. When we see it in society, politics has consequences. Your political philosophy matters because it has consequences. And that's more so true even in the church. How the church is governed matters for the health of the church. And Jesus said to his disciples, Matthew 16, I will build my church. He is building something. And guess what? He even gave us the blueprints for how he's going to build his church. He did not subcontract out the organization and government as church to our innovative, inventive ideas. He's laid it out for us in the scriptures. So kids, you could think of church structure and government as less like Play-Doh and more like a Lego set. 
So think of those two things, Play-Doh and a Lego set. With Play-Doh, you get it, comes in the packs, maybe various different colors, and it comes with no directions and no instructions. You just pop it open and you let that thing and your imagination run wild and then your parents clean it up afterwards. <laughs> you shape it however you want. That's not how the church should work. The church is not Plato. Church structure is not something we can shape however our imaginations design it. Instead, think of the church like a Lego set. When you get a Lego set, it comes with building pieces and it comes with a set of instructions. And you set down the various packs and you open them and you look at the numbers and the names and you look at the set of instructions and you follow it page by page. And if you follow the instructions properly, once you're done building, you have something beautiful, well-organized and structured so that you can enjoy or your siblings can destroy one of the two. (laughs) God's word is like that set of instructions that comes with the Lego set. A vital part of the local church is that we would take the pieces of the church, the people, the offices, the practices of the church, and that we'd organize them and structure them according to the directions in God's word so that we can have something beautiful and well-organized. Church health is about church structure, doing it the right way. And one key piece of this is in Acts 6, 1 to 7. The reason I'm taking you there this morning is because it tells us in Acts 6, 1 to 7, this is kind of the prototype of the office of deacon, that part of church structure is having these two offices, that deacons would come alongside the elders and serve and bear the responsibilities of ministry in a church in an official capacity. So what I want to do on this occasion and with this text is look generally at this church structure of deacons and then ask specifically the question, why did the Lord institute this office of deacon that we're about to witness an installment of as part of the structure of his church? Well, the first reason why the Lord institutes deacons was to divide up church labor, was to divide up church responsibilities. So if you look at the text with me, what we see at the outset of this passage is that there was a need to divide up church responsibilities because the church was growing, but it had growing problems. Okay, so if all you read was verse the first half of verse one, you would think things must be wonderful and grand and great in the church. Because look at the first half of verse one. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, it sounds good. The Lord is blessing, the word is advancing, the church is growing, all is well and good, right? No, it's not. Because look at the second half of verse one. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So we have these two social groups. One is uh, a Jewish group that has adopted Greek cultural practices and one is one that hasn't. So you kind of have these subsets and they each have widows within their fold. And widows were the most economically vulnerable people at that time who had the biggest needs. And one group is noticing that there's so many widows that some are being neglected. In fact, especially ours. So you have dissension and division starting to simmer as frustrations are rising. They're growing, but they have growing problems or growing pains, as you could say. And perhaps as a kid, you experience some pain and soreness in your legs. You know, you're eight, nine-year-old, you're lying in bed at night and your, your legs are throbbing. And you're wondering, why do my legs hurt? And so you call your parents in, and then you ask them, you know, why do my legs hurt so bad? Why is there so much soreness? And your parents inform you that these pains mean that your body is growing. You may not like it, but it means that you're getting bigger and stronger. This is part of God's design for you. Well, the growing pain 
that the Lord is going to use in his early church to build them up is that the ministry needs and ministry responsibilities and ministry opportunities have become far more than one group of leadership can handle. So at this time, you have the apostles, the 12 apostles, who are the ones overseeing the structure and organization and responsibilities of the church. But it has grown so much that the plate that they have cannot handle all the responsibilities that are being set on it. So some things are falling off the plate. And because this responsibility to these widows was being neglected, there is now frustration, and frustration is about to give rise to dissension and division. It's threatening the health of the church. So what are they going to do? So verse one is the problem. Then look at verse two through four, and that's the solution that is proposed. So in verse two, you see that the apostles call a congregational meeting. So congregational meetings aren't something we just like to do because we like gathering people for fun. It's something that even the Bible lays out as a practice and pattern for dealing with things in the life of the body of Christ. So it says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Meaning, we have these two ministries in the church. We have the ministry of the word, and under that banner of the ministry of the word falls teaching and preaching and discipling and counseling. Anything involved in really... You could say caring for and focusing on the spiritual needs of the church. We have this ministry, but we have the ministry of service as well. And under that banner of the ministry of service is all things that would fall under the practical, the physical, the administrative, the financial needs of the church. Things that focus on the physical care of the flock. We have these two, and we can't do both of them. And so what are we going to do? We have the ministry of the word, the ministry of service, and we're limited people. We're, we're finite human beings, and we cannot manage both of these. So what the apostles were acknowledging is that you have two very good things that cannot be handled by the existing structure within the church. It, it reminds me of, you know, I come home from work, my wife will often remind me, you can either have a clean house or you can have dinner at 6 p.m. You cannot have both, so which one do you want? And I always remind her, well, when I grew up, my mom was able to do both, so why can't you? And she, yes, yeah. She had the same reaction, which I thought, you know, I'm just giving you the facts, okay? So there's, we recognize we're finite and limited with with the responsibilities we have on our plate, and she does have a lot. So I do, I do humbly acknowledge that one day a week she's allowed to just have one. So, but they are human beings who are not living under the delusion that they can do it all, okay? Living under the delusion that one person or one group of people can do it all is not only harmful to an individual Christian, it's harmful to a church. And there are times where we can have this idea that in the church, either the pastor has that I can do it all or must do it all, or the members can have the idea that, well, I can do it all or they must do it all. And that is detrimental to the health of the church. The reason we have a body with the structure it is is so that every part of the body would contribute in its own unique way with its own unique giftings so that as a whole, the body works together to do its part. And I know about the delusion that you can do it all because I struggle with that delusion often, less more so than I did at first because initially, in my pride, I thought I can do it all and no one can do it better, so I'm not gonna delegate at all. But then in my fear of what others thought of me, I thought, I have to do it all. Because if I don't do it all, will others respect me the way I want to be respected? And thankfully, I had someone come along in the church 
who rebuked me and chided me and said, knock it off, stop doing it all. And it was very helpful. And then you have other elders and other deacons who have stepped up and helped. In fact, uh, recently, uh, most of you know that Mrs. Barron uh, moved away and she had a lot of needs as she was kind of transitioning into moving away. And I was was trying to help her juggle it on. I thought, I have to do it all. And I didn't really want to bother other people with it. And she had a moving day and I thought she was going to call me to help her move and she never called me. I was like, "Uh uh-oh, I hope she didn't get mad at me or something. And I go to her house that Tuesday for lunch and it's all empty. It's been packed. And I was like, oh. She's like, well, uh, Micah Smith came and helped me move that Saturday. And then I had a bunch of other people, my kids and you know whatnot, show up and help. And I was like, well, that's great. It was great to know that someone else had known about the need and had gone there and had provided for that need. And the Lord preserved me from thinking that I can do it all. A healthy church needs a plurality of leaders and servants so that they can divide up and share the responsibility of ministry. It cannot fall in the laps of one person or one group or one individual. And so that's what the apostles recognize, and that's the solution they propose in verses 3 and 4. So look there with me. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So we have these two ministries. We're not going to neglect either one. We need to focus on this one. So let's raise up another group of leaders who can focus on this one. Notice what the apostles don't say. They don't say, you know, the ministry of service, it's really not that important. So if some widows get neglected, who cares? As long as we're teaching good stuff, right? They don't say, you know, those widows, they're going to die soon anyway, and their body's going to rot in the grave. So what matters? You know, who cares if we care for their physical needs? They do not say that. Instead, they take action to appoint a whole new group of leaders who will give attention to and bear the responsibility for the physical and practical needs of the church, which shows us something. The ministry of the word and the ministry of service should exist in harmony in a church and be viewed as of equal importance. They're not in competition. They're not in a hierarchy. They're things that the church needs to give proper attention to equally. And so to ask, which is more important? The ministry of the word or the ministry of service is like asking which wing on an airplane is more important, the right wing or the left wing. If you're flying, you want both wings, okay? Or to ask which office in the church is more important, elder or deacon, is like asking which parent in a healthy family is more important, a mom or a dad. You want both. To even ask the question is to miss the point. The office and work of a deacon though different in focus and aim and job description than that of an elder, is as vital to the health and proper functioning of a local church. The office of deacon is not the church's version of a JV team or a minor league farm system, okay? We do not pity Joe and John and say, you know, they just could never make it in the big leagues with us guys up here, so let's give them the JV team. That's not what we're doing at all. We're acknowledging different giftings for different responsibilities to oversee within the church. And you need these two things to exist together because if the church is going to have a healthy, thriving, functioning word ministry, it needs a healthy, thriving, functioning ministry of service. And so why did the Lord institute the office of deacon in his church? To divide up church responsibilities, to give proper attention to both of these ministries in the church so that they would not be neglected. Now, before we go on to the next point, I want to show you what we just walked through. 
that the process that the apostles went through in the early church is the very basis for the process that we go through as a church when we seek to nominate and select and install officers in our church. In other words, our biblical intentionality extends not just to the type of offices and the structure we have in our church, but it even extends to the processes we follow and the principles we implement as a church when seeking to even nominate and select leadership in the church. So in verse 2, you see that the process starts with leadership initiative. So the leaders of the church at the time, the apostles, recognize a need within a church. They see that there's frustration and there's division on the horizon. So they take the initiative to call the church together and to propose a solution to the members of the church. So there's leadership initiative. Well, then in verse 3, the process moves forward with congregational participation. There's checks and balances within the church. Look at verse 3. He says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among yourselves, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. And so in the church, there is this check and balance between leadership and members in which every person plays a part. So the leaders lead, but they do not dictate and domineer the process. And the members are not passive spectators, but active participants in the life and organization and structure of a church. Church membership is not a spectator sport. Church membership is something in which you care deeply about the organization and structure of the church so much so that you get involved and care about how the processes are worked out, especially in electing the leadership of the church. Church membership is one in which you're actively involved in the life of the church. I voted recently for the midterm election. I voted early and voted once, okay? And after I finished voting, someone asked me, you know, after I voted, like, well, how did you feel? Did you feel like you were doing something of great consequence and great importance? Don't you just feel, you know, patriotic? And probably to this person's chagrin, my answer was, not really. I, I don't. I'm grateful for the freedom to vote. Don't get me wrong. I love being involved in the political process. I care about how the Bible should inform our political philosophy and participation. But when this present age comes to its conclusion, at the return of the King of Kings, the only institution that will be left standing is the church. All other institutions will be a fading shadow and a fleeting memory when the new age dawns and the new heavens and new earth come. We will have a political institution and it'll be Christ, King of Kings and Lord of Lords ruling over all. And when that happens, And when all earthly governments pass away, what will matter most is not who was governor of Florida in 2022, although that is a consequence. What will matter is how was the church governed and how did we care about the governance of the church? That will be most important because it is the only institution that Jesus promises, I will build it, I will sustain it, and it will last forever. And so if as a Christian, you are more concerned about and more eager to participate in the earthly political process than you are the church, then you have a citizenship identity disorder. I don't know how to say it any more strongly. You are ultimately primarily a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, which means you're to be a member of the church, a cared for, committed, contributing member of the church, because that is the institution that relates to your primary citizenship. All of the things are secondary to it and should be informed by it and subservient to it. Now, I care about politics, okay? But I care mostly about church politics. Well, then notice in verse three that there is a biblical standard 
that is to guide the church process. So verse three, congregational participation, pick out from among you, and then he gives them standards by which they're to be governed in this process. Seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. If you were to flip over to 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13, you'd see that character quality list expanded further. And notice what they guide the people with in their selection process. It's not a popularity contest. He doesn't say, notice those who have charisma, who can really grow this thing. Give us some good airtime. Who do you like the most in the church? Who's been the most successful or who has the greatest talents? That is not what the apostles direct them to. It is character, character, character. That is the most important quality that a Christian should value in its leadership within the church. Now, talents are great. We have talent in this church. Joe is an exceptional piano player. He is talent. You should hear him play Joy to the World. It's, he's really good at playing Joy to the World. It's his favorite song. But Joe is not going to be a deacon because he's good at piano. John was a great pilot. He might even still be a great pilot, okay? He had a successful career at Delta. But that's not why he's a deacon. We as elders are eager and excited to ordain and install Joe and John, not because of their talents or their looks or anything other than the fact that we have seen their character, we have witnessed their service, and by the grace of God, we can say of these men, they are worthy of this office. And in fact, what we're doing today is really formalizing what these men have already been doing. They have been deaconing, and now we're just gonna make them deacons. And it's a wonderful thing, and we are very excited for it because the Lord has instituted the office of deacon in the church so that the ministry responsibilities can be divided up, and these men have already started helping us with that. Well, now the second reason that the Lord instituted the office of deacon was so that this office would be a reflection of his service to us. That Christ in the church is in a sense replicating his own earthly ministry through the church. Christ is replicating what he came and did for us. Because the word deacon simply means a servant or one who serves. And this title of deacon, even this description of deacon, was not first used of these men in Acts 6 or of the office in 1 Timothy 3. It was first used of Jesus himself. As the apostles were fighting over in one of their uh, skirmishes over who's the greatest and who's going to have the best place, Jesus is listening in. And in their mind, he knows how they define greatness. Greatness for them is who has the highest rank, who sits in the most important seat, and who has the most prestige and honor. And Jesus, listening to this, turns their definition of greatness upside down. He says, in a sense, if you want to be the greatest, learn to be the least. Whoever would be great among you must be a deacon. Literally, it's the same word, must be a servant. For even the Son of Man came not to be deaconed, to be served, but to deacon and to give his life as a ransom for many. Whoever would be greatest among you must be a servant. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It's literally the same word as the office of deacon. And Jesus is saying, I am the one who embodies it perfectly, fully, most accurately. So the church has an office of service to reflect the fact that we worship the servant above all servants, the one who served in a way that no one else will even come close to reflecting it accurately. All service that will ever be rendered by the church and its members will only be but a dim reflection of how Christ came and served among us. Think of Christ. 
No one has left a higher position and stooped down to a lower place to serve more undeserving people. You will not get anyone who has come from higher and gone lower to less deserving people. But to give you just a faint picture of this, imagine, since we're about to have a general election, imagine if the governor of Florida shows up tomorrow at a Florida resident's house. And it's not just any house. It is a house whose yard is filled with his opponent's campaign signs. Okay, this is a serious uh, opposition. And he knocks on the door, and when that Florida resident answers the door, and they're stunned that the, the governor of Florida's there, and he said, you know, I heard that your bathrooms needed cleaning, so I'm here to clean your bathrooms for you. Can you imagine how stunned that person, he might win a vote that way, but the point is, this is a faint reflection of what Christ has done for us left his high position that he could have stayed in to come and stoop to a low position to serve the least deserving. And we see this pictured on the night before Jesus was betrayed. He's in an upper room. He's got 12 men with him who he's known intimately for three years. They're having a meal. And these are not just 12 ordinary people. One of them is going to be a betrayer. One of them is going to be a denier. And 10 of them are going to be forsakers. And they all have very dirty feet. And so Jesus puts on a servant's towel, takes a wash basin, and washes all 12 of those feet. A forsaker, a denier, and a betrayer. And he cleans, and he does, the lowest status service you could ever render from an earthly perspective. But it's not the ultimate act of service. Because in the ultimate act of service, those same hands that wash those dirty feet would in 24 hours be nailed to a cross so that he can wash filthy sinners by his blood and cleanse them and make them whole and righteous and forgiven. That is the ultimate act of service. And so our Savior has designed his church to be a reflection of him. We have a servant-hearted Savior, so we have a servant-hearted office, and we are to be servant-hearted people. As one author pointed out, the office of deacon, or just generally the work of serving is not glorious because it's always noticed, because it often isn't. Nor is it glorious because the work is always gratifying. It often isn't. It is glorious work to serve because it is a reflection of the one who has served us. That's where service gets its glory from. Not from its accolades, but from what it mirrors and who it reflects. So finally and briefly, the Lord instituted the office of deacon just to divide up ministry responsibility or to reflect his service to us, but to encourage every Christian in their calling to serve one another and others. So the office of deacon and his title may be unique to some, but the calling to serve others is not unique to anyone. In fact, it is common to all. You might not get the title of deacon, but you all as Christians have the identity of servants of Jesus Christ. That is part of your identity. And so the calling is to be who you are. So think of the office of deacon that we're about to witness here as not like hiring a plumber where you say, hey, I hired you so that I don't have to deal with this mess. But think of deacons like player coaches. So have you ever seen sports, something that they have player coaches? They're both out there on the field giving their all for the team, but they're also in one sense on the sideline encouraging the other teammates to get out there and do likewise. That's what the office of deacon is. And so we are called to this counter-cultural identity of servants of Jesus Christ who bear that out in our activity 
towards others. And this is countercultural, and it's hard because everything, in a sense, in the culture outside of us mitigates against it. When it comes to service, you are swimming against a very strong current going in the opposite direction. Why is that? Because the world's most important question that they ask is, what's in it for me? What can I get out of it? What have you done for me lately? But for you as a Christian, you're to be asking a different question. How can I be of service? How can I look to others' interests and needs and see them as more important than my own? We live in a world that is motivated by a desire to consume. We swim and breathe the air of a consumeristic culture, which asks, what can I get? How little effort can I put into getting that? And how can I be entertained and how can I be amused? I want to consume and take in. The Christian is to be motivated by a desire to give. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. So the question we're to ask is how can I bless others with what the Lord has blessed me with? How can I meet the needs that others have with the resources that God has given me? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So we want to be a church that not only has an office that reflects the servant above all servants, but we want to be a church in which the members care about service because we serve because he first served us. So let's pray to that end. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and that he came among us to serve, that he gave his life as a ransom for many. And so, Lord, we do pray and ask that in light of his service to us, we would be motivated and compelled and driven to serve others out of gratitude to him, that we would seek to be a reflection to the world of what Christ has done for us and who he is. Lord, forgive us for our selfishness. Forgive us for our consumeristic attitudes and mindsets. Lord, transform our hearts and renew our minds so that we more and more ask the question, how can we serve others? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.